Last time on Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, my name is David Chesnoff. Chesnoff's folksy introduction seems tailor-made for the Los Angeles jury, particularly his mention of his rescue dogs and his son who works at an addiction treatment facility. It's an unassuming snapshot of a man who has spent much of his career in Las Vegas representing celebrity clients such as David Copperfield, Britney Spears, and Paris Hilton. It's important to remember that Bob is only charged with Susan Berman's murder. That's what you folks are deciding. The evidence will show that this case is based on false memories, a profound misunderstanding of who Bob is, and a Hollywood production called The Jinx. But the evidence will further show that Kathy began using cocaine and she was drinking alcohol to excess. While Kathy got into med school, she had difficulties, particularly in her senior year, and had many absences. The evidence will show that Kathy's drinking and drug use contributed to her doing poorly at school and may explain the disappearance. In a day and age where there was very little use of cell phones, the evidence will show that Bob could not kill Kathy on that night and could not coordinate with Susan Berman to call her dean by the next morning and they had no proof whatsoever he ever spoke to Susan Berman that night. No proof means no evidence, means reasonable doubt. Yes, Bob found the body of Susan Berman on December 23, 2000, and he notified police of her body as he wrote what the prosecution calls the cadaver note. But he didn't murder Susan. I'm Carrie Antholis, and this is Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst, presented by Crime Story Media and ACAST. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at BlueNile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. It is afternoon on the last day of opening statements. The 12 jurors and 11 alternates appear engaged by David Chesnoff as he reads the text of his opening. Chesnoff has arrived at what he called the only issue connecting Robert Durst to the murder of Susan Berman. The fact that he discovered Berman's body and sent an anonymous note to inform the Beverly Hills police. Those of us in the gallery who have been following the case are eager to hear how he will address this critical piece of evidence. And yet Chesnoff does not dwell on it, and instead focuses on what was not there. Yes, Bob found the body of Susan Berman on December 23, 2000, and he notified police of her body as he wrote what the prosecution calls the cadaver note. But he didn't murder Susan. Susan was most likely killed the morning of December 23, 2000. She was last seen alive on Friday evening, December 22nd. She'd gone to dinner and a movie with a friend, a fellow named Richard Markey. Now, we heard that there's no signs of a struggle. The photos at the scene indicate that the phone in the room that Miss Berman's body was found was disconnected from the wall and off the hook. 
That's evidence of a struggle. The coroner report notes that there are several minute small purple contusions on the front of the left and right thighs and inner right knee. There is a faint reddish probable contusion on the back of her hand. The evidence will show that there was no proper follow-up investigation with respect to the door being damaged, the phone being off the hook, or with respect to the contusions and bruises that Susan had. The evidence will show that the police investigation in January and February of 2001, right after Susan Berman murder, didn't produce one piece of forensic evidence for you to consider. There are no fingerprints of Bob, no handprints of Bob, no DNA of Bob, no blood of Bob, no fiber of Bob, no gun was ever found tying Bob to the crime. There are no shoe prints in the house. There's blood, you're gonna see there's paw prints from the dogs, but there's no shoe prints. As of January 12, 2001, a criminalist hadn't even been assigned by LAPD to this case. So if she's murdered on the 23rd, seven, 19 days go by before the LAPD thinks it's worthwhile to go in with a criminalist and assign a criminalist to study who might have killed Susan Byrne. 19 days. No fingernail scrapings were done on Susan to identify a possible attacker. No evidence is evidence. No evidence is evidence. Yet again, no evidence is evidence. This brings us back to the same strategy that Dick DeGuerin used in Durst's Galveston, Texas trial for the murder of Morris Black. Investigators there never found Black's head, and DeGuerin and his team claimed that wounds to the head might have supported Durst's story that he had killed Black in self-defense. In this instance, Chesnoff tells the jury, the lack of evidence was due to a slow response from the LAPD. But he muddies the logic a bit. More tests should have been done, Chesnoff suggests. There should have been a more rapid and thorough investigation to find evidence. This forensic evidence might have supported Durst's story that someone else killed Susan Berman. But what about the direct evidence that does exist? Bob Durst now says that he was in Susan Berman's home shortly after she was killed. He discovered her cadaver, wrote an anonymous note informing the police, and then denied that he was ever there until there was overwhelming proof to the contrary. Chesnoff glides past these issues and moves on to his next topic. We also know that because they delayed so long in actually assigning somebody to investigate this, that people were traipsing through the crime scene. Her relatives came in the house. Her manager, a fellow named Niall Brenner, actually climbed in the window of the house while there was still indications that it was a crime scene, went through her voicemails, which is interesting. We don't know if he erased them, didn't erase them. He actually went into the crime scene because it was never secured by LAPD, never secured, so that a proper investigation of who killed Susan Berman could be done. It went through her mail. This is, the, the police hadn't gone through her mail. And this guy was going through her mail after she was murdered, 
and the police apparently didn't secure the scene. In a prior hearing, Susan's friend Richard Markey testified that Susan had a turbulent love-hate relationship with her manager, Niall Brenner. Markey told the court that he initially suspected that Brenner murdered Susan, especially when Brenner refused to cooperate with the investigation. In 2001, New York Magazine ran an article titled, quote, Who Killed the Mobster's Daughter, end quote. The journalist who wrote the piece reached out to Niall Brenner for an interview. Quote, Brenner, who friends say is the person who spoke to Susan most frequently and spent the most time with her, declined to be interviewed, except to say, quote, Yes, I know. Everyone adored her. She was remarkable and incredibly talented, but she was not an easy person to get along with, okay? End quote. Reached a second time, Brenner hissed, quote, I've got other clients to take care of. I don't have time for this. I was tapped out by Susan every day while she was alive, and it's the same thing in her death. I just can't take it anymore. End quote. David Chesnoff seems to imply that he will present Niall Brenner as an alternative suspect in his defense of Robert Durst. And yet, in pretrial motions, Judge Wyndham made very clear that Mr. Durst's attorneys cannot present such a defense because they have never been able to offer any compelling evidence that Mr. Brenner or any other person was responsible for the murder. And so the innuendos about Mr. Brenner are likely to evaporate at trial. After addressing Niall Brenner, Chesnoff returns to Susan's relationship with Robert, telling the jury that Susan was excited to see her friend, not afraid for her life. She wasn't concerned that Bobby was coming. She wasn't, the evidence showed, blackmailing Bobby. She wasn't concerned that Bobby was angry at her. She was happy that Bobby was coming because if you consider the evidence the way it's being presented, the idea is that somehow she was blackmailing Bob. Well, you're not happy if you think the guy who's coming that you're blackmailing is angry at you and he might shoot you. The prosecution is basically relying solely on witnesses who waited years to report alleged statements that Susan or Bob made. Actually, a lot of them was only until after they were aware of the jinx and other media and were interviewed by Mr. Lewin having reviewed media and heard third-party stories, that they described some of these alleged statements by Susan. They didn't do it in 2000. Uh, they didn't, I mean, at no time, until it once again became a media sensation, and all of a sudden, all of these people that were supposedly great friends of Susan had these revelations. But never at one time did they ever share it with the police? When you would think the evidence would show, a dear friend would tell the police whatever they could to help find who killed their friend. And the evidence will show they didn't. David Chesnoff is telling the jury that the defense will be challenging the testimony of witnesses who suggest that Susan was a threat to Robert Durst because of what she knew. John Lewin presented some of that testimony in his opening. First, there was Miriam Barnes, who told Deputy DA Habib Balian she remembered Susan summoning her to her apartment, urgently needing to speak with her. She needed to talk to me. Was there anything out of the ordinary about the way she summoned you up to her apartment? There was a sense of urgency. 
she was, uh, it, it took her a while to get it out. She was very nervous. And when Susan got nervous, she'd pick at her lip. And, it, it, and she said, I did something today and did it for Bobby. And then her next statement was, if anything ever happened to me, Bobby did it. If anything ever happened to me, Bob did it. Susan sounded scared of Robert Durst. Linda Obst also testified about a conversation with Susan Berman about the kinds of things Susan would do for Durst and how it reminded Berman of the kinds of things that her mother would do for her gangster father. She once told me that she called Albert Einstein Medical Center for him and, and said she was Kathy. It came up in the context of she did the sorts of things for Bobby that Gladys did for Davy. And the example that she gave was that when Bobby was asked her to or needed her to, she made this phone call to Albert Einstein in Kathy's name. And finally, there was the particularly damning testimony of Nick Chavin, who first relayed what Susan said to him about Bob. Susan said to me specifically that Bob killed Kathy, and I said, no, he didn't, and she said, yes, he did, and we argued about that, and she said, we love both of them, Kathy's gone, we love Bob, we need to protect him, Bob killed Kathy. I said, how do you know? She said, he told me. Chavin then relayed what Bob said to him about Susan as they were leaving a restaurant in 2014. We walked out the door. This is hard. We walked out the door, and on the sidewalk, I said, you wanted to talk about Susan? And Bob said, I had to. It was her or me. I had no choice. In response to this testimony, the defense plans to present evidence that the statements of Miriam Barnes, Linda Obst, and Nick Chavin were based on false or altered memories. As you see, evidence will be presented which will support the suppressed memories can be altered. So, for example, even if those people aren't seeking attention or aren't making it up, they really, in their mind, think that something was said. We're going to bring you an expert witness, Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, distinguished professor at the University of California. She is prepared to testify at this trial about the workings of human memory, the effects of suggestion on memory, the mechanism of creating false memories, and the characteristics of false memories, and her review of materials in this case Moreover, she would identify some of the suggested activities that occurred in this case, such as leading questions when people are being interviewed, and outside research, including media, including the jigs. In conclusion, David Chesnoff revisits his now well-worn maxim, no evidence is evidence. There will be no physical evidence of anything happening to Mrs. Durst in the South Salem home. Dr. Cooperman received a call from Kathy Durst the day after the DA says she died in the house with no forensic evidence. An extensive police investigation over years never led to charges against Bob for Mrs. Durst's disappearance 
let alone a prosecution and a trial. There is not one piece of scientific evidence whatsoever tying Bob to Kathy's disappearance or Ms. Berman's murder. And so, after all of the evidence is presented and the jurors begin their deliberations, they will have to choose between two ways of interpreting evidence. Will they be guided by Chesnoff's mantra that no evidence is evidence, deciding that the lack of CSI-type forensic evidence leaves them with reasonable doubt of Durst's guilt? Or will they follow Lewin's OK Boomer method, deciding that the mess of circumstantial evidence surrounding Durst's actions and statements, and the statements of others, leaves only one reasonable explanation, that Robert Durst killed Susan Berman. Now, as we consider how this jury might navigate these two alternative perspectives, it is worth keeping in mind who is on the panel. Again, the jury includes a woman who works as a geographic systems engineer and a man who is a retired FBI special agent. There is a woman raised in the Philippines who now has a career as a nurse. Then there's the Midwestern software engineer, the clinical pharmacist, the management services worker, the studious pathologist, the retired teacher, and the bespectacled poet. There's the juror who called Durst a charming psychopath during voir dire, a skeptical woman who has never seen the jinx, and a mathematician who initially thought that the trial was for Fred Durst, the lead singer of Limp Biscuit. This is a highly educated cohort of West Los Angeles women and men who may be skeptical of arguments about the lack of forensic evidence, false memories, and abuse victims' drug use, and filmmaker manipulation in the face of evidence like Durst's admissions of spousal abuse, of corpse dismemberment, and of having been in Susan Berman's house and discovering her body after having for many years denied even being in Los Angeles on the night Susan was killed. Chesnoff makes one last plea for fairness on behalf of his client. The unfairness of all of this is after 40 years, they never charged him with Kathy's disappearance. And yet, he has to face that. He has to face a murder charge for a case that he was acquitted in. Mr. Durst will testify that the kind of things like that that make him believe that he is a pursued person, it's not paranoia, it's happening here. This case was wrapped in a bow by Jarecki and his Hollywood production. It led to a universal belief that Bob would never get a fair trial. But everybody over here knows that you people are going to consider evidence only. And if the evidence is not there, Bob Durst will be found not guilty and he will leave the courtroom as innocent as he is as he sits there, because remember, until you hear the last piece of evidence in this case, he is presumed innocent. And until you people collectively analyze that evidence and say, is there really proof, he stays innocent. And you will find him not guilty. Thank you for listening. And with that, David Chesnoff closes his black binder filled with notes and returns to his swivel chair beside Robert Durst. The court TV screen displays a simple message. In white text over a black background, it reads, Thank you for your time. 
Time is something that is undoubtedly on everyone's mind, from the jury to the judge to the attorneys to the defendant, Robert Durst. Susan Berman's alleged murder took place in December of 2000. It wasn't until 15 years later that Robert Durst was arrested in New Orleans after the jinx aired on HBO. Discovery and pretrial hearings took over four years. Jury selection for Durst's trial began on February 19, 2020, with the trial commencing on March 4th. Now, after four days of opening statements, a process that typically takes less than a single day, it's evident to everyone why the trial is expected to last for five months. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. At least it was expected to last for five months. After two days of testimony, the L.A. courts were shut down due to COVID-19 and the trial was suspended. Due to the relentless spread of the pandemic in California, the trial faced numerous subsequent delays, placing the jurors' lives on hold while they waited for the trial to resume. On Friday, July 31st, the lawyers and the judge, wearing masks and observing social distance requirements, reconvened to determine the future of Robert Durst's trial. With California's reported COVID cases still climbing, Judge Mark E. Wyndham determined that another indefinite delay was untenable. A different course of action was required. The people had proposed a new date of April 12th, and in moving papers, both sides agreed. Mr. Durst agreed in writing. I would say that both sides had made a good cause argument for the adjournment, so I'll treat it as a joint motion to adjourn until April 12th. But I would set an earlier date here in Department 81, one month ahead of that, just to be sure that we're on track and to to assess the health conditions at the time. The trial of Robert Durst has been adjourned until April 12th, 2021. At that time, the same jury will return to finish a trial that they started more than a year before. At the end of this episode, we will tell you more about our plans to cover these proceedings in the coming months. For now, based upon the two days of testimony that occurred before the trial was suspended, here is a taste of some of what lies ahead. On the first day of testimony, Robert Durst's brother, Thomas Durst, arrives in court, appearing frail, hobbling on a damaged leg, and wearing surgical gloves. At 70 years old, Thomas is the youngest of the Durst siblings. He resides in the California Bay Area, where he is a real estate developer and a philanthropist. From the moment that Thomas takes the stand, it's apparent that he's uncomfortable, itching in his own skin. First of all, how do you feel about being here today? I hate it. Okay. And and can you tell me why you're here? I was subpoenaed. 
And did you come voluntarily? No, sir. And did you do everything in your power to <clears throat> try and avoid coming here? Times 10. And can you tell me why is it that you don't want to be here today? I'm humiliated to be here. This is a horrible experience. And uh, I'm fearful of my brother. As Thomas begins his testimony, his voice is soft and timid, with little inflection. He relates that he is not there voluntarily, but because he has been subpoenaed, and that he is terrified of his brother. Much of Thomas's testimony, guided by prosecutor John Lewin, is focused on establishing that his brother Robert was very controlling of Robert's wife, Kathy, during the time before her disappearance in late January 1982 particularly when it came to money. Lewin asks Thomas about Robert's general attitude regarding his finances. On a scale of 0 to 100, with 0 being the cheapest person you've ever met, and 100 being the most generous, based on your experience growing up and knowing your brother, how would you rate your brother? I, I believe about minus 50, if, if the scale goes that though. Thomas testifies that Robert, who has a net worth estimated to be over $100 million, gave his wife only food stamps to go shopping. And on one occasion, during a trip to a local market, Thomas gave Kathy Durst money to cover feminine hygiene products and other items not covered by the food stamps. On another occasion, in the weeks just before Kathy's disappearance, Kathy approached Thomas and begged him for financial assistance. Thomas refused to write Kathy a check for fear of Robert discovering that he had given her money. Instead, he gave her all of the cash he had on hand, maybe a few hundred dollars, as Thomas recalls. But in spite of Thomas's effort to conceal his gift to Kathy, Robert found out. During a trip taken by Thomas from his home in San Francisco to visit his family in New York in April of 1982, three months after Kathy Durst's disappearance, Robert confronted Thomas about the discovery before breakfast at Thomas's hotel. As you know, Kathy was already was missing by that time. I use the term missing. And uh, Robert Durst uh, came up to me, and these are the words he said. He said it, uh, I know she asked you for money, but that's not the meaning that he put on it. He said it like this. I know she asked you for money! The soft-spoken, frail man is now a raging fountain of venom. The jurors are visibly stunned by the outburst of emotion. All eyes are glued to Durst's little brother. <clears throat> so the, uh, for the record, to capture, there was a, this is a very angry tone that the witness used when he, when he uh, stated those words. He shouted this, those words in an angry tone. Mr. Durst, um, when you said that, um, how did you take that? I felt like I was about to die. As Deputy District Attorney Lewin continues the questioning, Thomas Durst reverts back to his soft-spoken tone and further recounts the events that day. When Lewin asks him, what's the next thing that happened? Thomas Durst describes how Robert rejoined him and their father Seymour after the breakfast and headed together towards the Durst organization. They walked through an office building on the way, as was Seymour's habit, 
and came to a revolving door. So Seymour goes through the revolving door first, then I go into the revolving door, and from behind, like a sneak, he takes his full strength, and you can't think of him this way. He was strong in those days. He took his full strength, and he shoved the glass, and I went around and around, and I fell out. Oh, my God. I fell out on the street, on my knees, and he's guffawing. It's the funniest thing he's ever seen in his entire life. An elderly gentleman had gotten into the, into the revolving door before me, I mean after me, and he also ended up on the floor, but he was on the floor inside the building, and he's shouting, idiots, idiots, like I had something to do with this. Bob is guffawing, Seymour is his usual self, walking away, who are these people, I don't know. And I'm, you know, I, I'm listening to my brother laughing. He's just holding his gut. It is so funny. As Lewin continues his questioning, a pall of expended adrenaline falls over the courtroom. Thomas Durst testifies for a bit longer and answers some questions on rebuttal by Mr. DeGarren. But his expression of pent-up anguish proves to be the first truly searing moment of this trial. 